Well, tomorrow is the birthday of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Many of us know that. Uh, January 15th is his actual birthday. I don't know if you know that or not. Usually we have a national holiday on the third Monday of every January. And so we just wanted to recognize this incredible figure. Um, From time to time, one of the things that, that I do is I, well, I'm currently listening to his autobiography, but one of the things that I do is I will pull up one of his messages or his speeches and read it uh, because he was a master of the English language. Uh, but deeply embedded in his speeches, you hear oh, so much hope, so much Christian hope. Um, one of his most famous speeches is I Have a Dream. I think this is a picture of him um, uh, and I just want to read a little bit from that, that speech, because uh, I think that those words, I mean, they still apply today, and they're beautiful, and they're wonderful. So, um, and I won't be able to do it in his inimitable style, but still, I think it's good for us to hear his words. And so, um, I quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And he goes on to say, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I mean, these words are almost straight from the book of Isaiah. And of course, what are these words? What is this dream but a beautiful vision of the coming kingdom of God? I mean, one of the the things that I admire so much about Dr. King is the way that he integrated his action, his life action with his faith. And when I read uh, a speech like that, I can see that there's eschatological hope for the kingdom of God all the way through it. What is his dream but not a dream for Eden? And uh, of course, this dream would not have to be dreamed if something didn't go dreadfully wrong in Eden. We've been in this series, uh, we started this series last week called In the Beginning. We've been preaching through the book of Genesis. We are looking at the book of Genesis. Now, of course, last week I talked about knowing our origin stories. It's like We know where we came from. We know uh, what we, what our, our ancestors or our spiritual ancestors did, then, then we know a lot about what our future might be and about how to live today. And so we talked about last week going back to the beginning um, so that we could learn about what uh, humankind is actually for. Before sin enters the world, um, what are we for? What is humanity for? And so we looked at Genesis chapter 2 this last week, and this week... We want to look at sin, Genesis 3. So you got bundled up in the cold, in your car, for 30 minutes on sin. (laughs) Uh, I wish, I mean, like, if I had told you what we were going to talk about, maybe you would have been like, I think I'll stay home today. But I'm so grateful that you're all here, and welcome to those of us who are watching online. Uh, We need to talk about sin. Sin is where... Things go dreadfully wrong. Without sin, we wouldn't have Dr. King's dream. We wouldn't have a civil rights movement. So we're in this series on Genesis. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the tragedy of the garden. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. 
We're going to talk about three things, uh, Genesis 3, uh, three things, the nature of sin, like what is sin? We're going to talk about the effects of sin, and we are going to talk about the compassion, the surprising compassion of God. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read some parts of it, and then I'm going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about three different things, the nature of sin, the effects of sin, the compassion of God. And and before I start reading, you know that like our mission here at the Evanston Vineyard is to join Jesus in the restoration of all things. So restoration presumes that we are returning to a state. And what is that state that we're returning to? Well, it's Eden. And so you've heard me talk last week about how we can restore the world, uh, how we can restore or re-Eden God's good creation. Uh, so today, as we talk about sin, I'm going to encourage us uh, in some practices that may be like re-edening practices, re-eden the world, right? So let's dive in. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from we may eat fruit, excuse me, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine... Uh, this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, uh, it has been poured over and dissected and memorized and studied for centuries. Theologians, biblical scholars have been looking at it, looking at this passage for answers to the question, what is sin? What is sin? Uh, and they've answered it, and as you can imagine, all sorts of different kinds of ways. Um, some say that sin is pride. So sin is trusting in our own wisdom more than God's wisdom, which you can see that Adam and Eve are doing. They're trusting in their own direction than God's wisdom. Um, some scholars say that sin is ambition, like we want to be like God. Uh, you see it in the past. The serpent says to the woman, like, you eat of it and you'll become like God. You will be like God. Uh, this is the temptation toward a destructive ambition. And why is it destructive? And what's so tragic about it? Well, here's the thing that's tragic about that ambition. They're already like God. We are humanity created in God's image. And here's the serpent twisting the words. Uh, they didn't need to be like God in this way, knowing good and evil. Uh, and yet, here's what the serpent actually says. Uh, somebody that I quote from a lot, St. Augustine, North African bishop, he calls sin a curving into ourselves. So he is in Latin, he calls it like incurvatus and say, curving into ourselves um, by rebelling against the will of God. Adam and Eve are curving away from God and into themselves. And of course, that like helps us understand what repentance is. If sin is curving into ourselves, then repentance is curving toward God. And you might have heard us talk about this before. 
Um, all of these things I think are, are, are true, but I'd like to draw actually from a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard because he defined sin in this way. He defined it as despair. Sin is despair, according to Kierkegaard. And for Kierkegaard, he understood despair to be a refusal to be true to ourselves or to be our true selves. Let me explain. You remember we talked last week about how there was in the garden, uh, before sin entered the world, there was a tree, uh, which we're reading about here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from. So in other words, in the garden, there was restriction, there was limitation. So uh, God says to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is what uh, Yahweh tells Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Before sin enters the world, there is already restriction, which flies against the way that most of us think about freedom. I, would, I think if you were to ask a person on the street, well, what does it mean to be free? They would tell you, well, I can do whatever I want when I want to do it, free from anyone telling me what to do. They would say that's freedom. And here you have freedom in the garden, and freedom carries with it restriction, constraint. Uh, Here's the interesting thing about the tree. If you read the Bible, there's nothing in the Bible that, that presumes that God wants to withhold the knowledge of good and evil from Adam and Eve. There's nothing in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible. The whole testimony of the scripture, in fact, would tell us that Yahweh wants to teach us his wisdom, wants to teach us how to discern from good and evil. So, 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 like, in fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, uh, you see this picture of, of, of the, the mountain of God, and on the top of the mountain is Yahweh himself. And what is Yahweh doing? Does anyone know on the top of the mountain? He's teaching. He's teaching his people. He is teaching his people. Uh, part of what he's teaching them is his wisdom, and he's also teaching them, part of what he's teaching them is to discern the difference between good and evil. So there's nothing in the text. The reason why the constraint of the tree is actually in the garden is not because God wants to withhold that knowledge from, it, from them. It's pretty clear throughout the Bible that he wants to teach us, teach us how to live well, teach us what good and evil are. And so what is the tree for? What's the tree for? Well, the tree... I believe, is meant to teach humans two things. The tree is meant to teach humans, to teach Adam and Eve, number one, that we're limited, and number two, that we're dependent. So we're limited. In other words, we're creatures. Uh, we need water. We need food. Uh, it's not good for us to be alone. These are all dependencies that humankind experienced, by, by the way, before the fall. The humans had to eat before the fall. Good news, we will eat at the end of time. How many of you love to eat? Yeah, I love eating. I love eating. You know, um, we're not robots or automatons. I mean, we need to eat. I love to eat. How many of you are looking forward to eating after you leave this room? Yes, how many of you are hungry now, now, or now that I've said this? Yeah, like we're made to eat. We're made to be dependent. Um, we're, made, we're limited. Um, we can't just go forever without food. We can't go forever without water. This is part of what the tree is teaching. The tree is teaching humans that they're limited. Uh, by the limit of the tree, they're teaching humans, you can't and you cannot transpass every boundary or every obstacle, right? That's the first one. The second thing, we're also dependent. So, 
Number one, we're limited. Number two, we're dependent. So if knowledge of good and evil, how many of you would say knowledge of good and evil is pretty important? Yeah, it's pretty important, right? I mean, like part of, like for those of us who have kids, part of what we do is we try to teach our kids the difference between good and evil. That's part of what we do. Part of what it means to be in good friendships, to have mentors, is that mentors kind of teach us. They, they move us along and they help us to know the best way to live and to know what things to avoid, to know, to know what good things to lean into. I'm so grateful for Steve, who's mentored me over the years, because he's taught me what to do. He's not only just taught me like the wise thing to do, he's also helped me to avoid things that would lead me into a trap. I need him. We need one another. Like I think God intended for Adam and Eve to be dependent on him. In the garden, God intended. I mean, it was clear in Genesis 2 that he was talking to Adam and Eve. They had conversations. They like, you know, walked around in the cool of the day. Let's go take a walk. How many of you like are terrified by that? You know, I mean, like, this was a wonderful reality for them that God actually wanted to have a relationship with them and was having a relationship and, with them and was teaching them. And so, according to Kierkegaard's understanding, Adam and Eve eating from the tree is a denial that they are limited and that they are dependent. It's a denial. It's despair because it's denying that they, that they need God to teach them. Like our own eyes are open, so we don't need God to teach us his wisdom. It's a denial that they're finite. We can be like God. We don't need the limits that are in this garden. We don't need to be limited because we are unlimited. Uh, part of what Kierkegaard is telling us is Kierkegaard is telling us that Adam and Eve's true selves is that they're weak, they're frail, they're dependent, they're limited, and they need to be dependent on someone or something or someone or something to be to, they need to be dependent on that someone to understand what it means to live life well, right? And so according to Kierkegaard, they're denying their true selves by that. And so for you and me, what is sin? Part of what Genesis 3 is telling us is sin is denying that we are limited. Uh, sin comes from denying that we are limited. Uh, in other words, we think our knowledge of the world is better than God's knowledge of the world. We don't need God to teach us his wisdom. And the other thing that sin is, is sin uh, comes from denying that we are dependent. We don't need anybody to help us. Don't need anybody to teach us. Our way is the best. You know, I think the funny thing about sin is that we think sometimes that sin is weakness, but sin is not actually weakness. Sin is denying that we're weak. Uh, sin is denying that we're weak. It's denying that we're dependent. I mean, Adam and Eve, they were the first to deny these fundamental truths about human existence, and it led to disaster. I mean, Kierkegaard actually caused this despair or deep sadness. I mean, notice what happens to Adam and Eve after they eat the forbidden fruit. What do they do? Does anyone know what they do? They hide. Uh, we read in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they, everyone say it with me, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let me remind you that at the end of Genesis 2, there's a beautiful verse at the end of Genesis 2. And at the end of Genesis 2, if you might recall, uh, uh, the end of Genesis 2, it says Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no, anyone remember what they, what they didn't feel any of? Felt no shame. Shame, according to uh, Kurt Thompson, um, is the sense of inherent badness about ourselves. And the thing about sin is it's a really good incubator for shame. Have you ever noticed uh, that sin is something you cover up? You know, you, you hide, yes? Sin makes us keep a lookout. Sin conditions us to blame. You ever notice that Adam and Eve don't need to be taught that skill? They're pretty good at blaming and how many of you know that blaming doesn't really help anything? Anybody ever thought, I think that the solution to my problems is that I should just blame somebody? You know, I mean, like, this, but this is what sin does. You hide and you blame. And so how do we re-Eden or restore ourselves? Like Genesis 3, what do we do? We do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. We stop hiding. So how do we bring restoration? How do we re-Eden the world? We Stop hiding. How do we participate with God in our own healing? We come into the light, as Jesus tells us in John chapter 3. Uh, come into the light, because everyone who lives by the truth, they come into the light. And what's that truth? The truth is the truth about ourselves, that we need God. We need God. Human existence doesn't work unless someone helps us. I mean, we all need a little help nowadays, don't we? You know, how about a little divine intervention? You know, I pray that divine intervention would happen for each one of us every day. I'm always praying. I need a little divine intervention. I don't think that's foolish hope. I think that's really good, solid kind of hope. And so how do we come into the light? In a world racked with sin, how do we stop hiding? Well, James tells us, this is how we do it. Confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, some of you uh, know um, uh, who Brene Brown is. is any, people know who Brene Brown is? She had this TED Talk on vulnerability um, that's like, 10 or 11 million views. It just like, it just was all the rage. Um, Brene Brown herself is a believing Christian, I believe, I think. And, and, and this vulnerability talk, like it had so much traction because it's really about this. It's really about coming out of hiding and admitting the truth of ourselves, making ourselves vulnerable. You know, like I came to this vineyard in the 90s uh, in the late 90s, by the way, I uh, came to this vineyard like as a college student. I started going to seminary here, and and I will never. This has always been my home church and my favorite church. Uh, not not to say that the other churches weren't great at all; they were awesome. But this has always been my favorite church. I have such fond memories of this church back in the 90s because I came into freedom and healing here. 
this church has made more impact on me than any other church in my entire life. And part of the reason why is because I learned how to confess here. I remember being in the basement of John Wilson, my like, uh, uh, he was my mentor back in the day. I was a worship leader and he was a worship pastor. And, and, I, um, and he like mentored me and he's like my spiritual, one of my spiritual fathers. I mean, he and Steve have had more impact on my life than, than really any other person. And I remember being in his basement uh, when he lived in Chicago. And I remember telling him my story to the, to the finest, darkest detail. I told him everything. I unburdened myself before him, and I remember, uh, I remember how he responded. I remember to this day. I remember that he looked at me, and he told me the truth about, about, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told me, the Lord forgives you. It was almost like I was hearing it for the first time. And then he said something uh, that I'll never forget. He, he said to me, I don't think any less of you. For everything that you've just shared, I don't think any less of you. So he did two things. The first thing he did was he shared the grace of Jesus Christ with me. The second thing that he did is he spoke to my dignity as a person made in the image of God. Those two things led me onto the road to freedom. Confession. It's the antidote to the problem in Genesis 3. We come out of hiding, we confess. And I just, I want to tell you my personal story that the way that I know how to come into freedom is not to be as strong and as righteous as I can be, to be as, but to be as honest as I can be about who I am, about my frailties, my weaknesses, and my dependencies. I want you to know, all of you to know, I am the pastor, I am a pastor in this church, not because I'm better than any of you, not because that I live Christianly more than all of you do. I am here because God called me to be here. I'm here out of obedience. I'm not here because, I'm, because I am perfect and righteous. I'm here. I'm a weak person just like all of you are. And the only way that I know to walk into freedom is to say, Jesus, help me. Help me. Help me. And let me come into the light. Let me speak the truth about who I actually am, which is that I'm weak and that I'm frail and that I'm dependent and that I can't fix myself and I need your help. I need your help. So my invitation to you to re-eat in the world is to begin to practice some confession. Confession. You know, my friend Adam Russell, he likes to say that the Bible tells us that when we confess our sins to God, he forgives us. But when we confess our sins to one another, we're healed. This is part of what James is telling us. Do you have anyone that you confess your sins regularly to? I'm not saying, of course, do this unwisely or incautiously and just grab someone and say, hey, let me confess some things to you. I mean, like, find a friend that you trust or a pastor. You know? Um, in fact, we could just stop the service right now and we could just all start confessing to one another. Would you like that? We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. But, I mean, like, I have a good friend that I, I, I know I can confess to. I practice confession with my wife. And I, I, I guess what I'm inviting you to do is to have a regular practice of confession. I mean, the reason why we do communion every Sunday is not because we do it because the Catholics do it. We do it because it's a reminder that because of the blood, we can be forgiven. It's an opportunity every Sunday to practice some honest confession to God. I hope you're feeling uncomfortable. I hope you're feeling uncomfortable. Because here's the thing. 
sin, if we don't confess and we don't bring it out in the light, it's like a weed. It's like a fungus. It just keeps growing. It keeps growing. It keeps growing. It keeps growing. Uh, why is that? Why does it keep growing? Why, uh, if we do not come into the light, why does it grow unchecked? What, what is the reason for it? Like theologians across the centuries, uh, they tell us that sin entered into humanity and all the subsequent generations of humankind because of what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So Adam and Eve, I know they didn't die right away, but they most certainly did die. They could have freely eaten from the tree of life, but they didn't. Uh, and so death becomes a reality of every human. And we also understand, theologians have helped us understand, that sin becomes a reality for creation, corrupting it, which is why the Apostle Paul says the creation is in bondage to decay, and which is why, like Annie Dillard in her masterpiece program at Tinker Creek, which is not light reading at all, she talks about the brutality of nature. She says, in nature, I find grace tangled in a rapture with violence. I find an intricate landscape whose forms are fringed in death. Now, what's Annie Dillard saying? Annie Dillard is basically saying as soon as Adam and Eve opened the door to sin, sin was happy to take up residence. Now, I just want to say one thing, uh, and then we'll move on to the compassion of God. Like I, I, The idea that I'm talking about uh, theologically is, is an idea called original sin. Uh, and it's usually attributed to St. Augustine, this North African bishop I mentioned earlier. So original sin. Uh, and so Augustine believed that all of humanity was in Adam and Eve biologically when they ate of the tree. Uh, you know, but I've been, I've been, as I've been studying Genesis, I've been reading this commentary by an evangelical scholar named John Golden Gate. It's a commentary on Genesis. It's wonderful. And one of the things that Golden Gate points out is that Original sin, this idea that all humanity was in Adam and Eve biologically when they ate of the tree, uh, Golden Gate says, Genesis does not suggest that all subsequent humanity is implicated in orig Adam's original sin. Uh, it's not in the text, according to Golden Gate. It's not even the curses, which we're about to look at. And I mention this. I only mention this. I'm not here to litigate original sin. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't believe in it. I'm, just, I'm saying this because some of you may have grown up in churches where they hammered the idea of original sin. And they hammered it in such a way that you started to believe that the thing that was original to you was your sin. The most original thing to you was your sin, and not original or primary was your made, being made in the image of God. I just say this to say that when you hammer the idea of original sin, you can become, you can, you can downplay the truth that we're all made in the image of God. I don't know about you, but my Bible starts at Genesis 1. It doesn't start at Genesis 3. And what I know in Genesis 1 and 2 is that you've been made in the image of God. And I know that God called you very good when he made you, when he made humanity. We are made in the image of God, called very, very good. Sin enters the world. And, and yes, Golden Gay talks about how there's inevitability about human sinfulness. Paul would take it further and call it a sin nature. Uh, in other words, somehow sin ended up in you and me. What I know about all of you, 
in this room today is that you have a sin nature. I know that. I know that. Uh, There's a problem inside of you. There's a problem inside of me. And if there's a problem inside of me, I need a solution. The problem that I have inside of me, the world will tell us I have a problem inside of me and I can fix that problem in and of myself. But God tells us in Genesis 3 the solution comes from outside of us. And it's found in these curses, surprisingly. Let's look at the curses really quickly. If you look uh, at um, these curses, you'll see a quick thing that I want to say about curses. Eden was a state of blessedness. Uh, the opposite of blessedness is the opposite of being cursed, is cursed, right? And so part of what's happening in these curses is that God is telling uh, the people listening to this story that life is now going to be in this way. Sometimes I think when we read curses, we think like, okay, this is punishment. But I'm not sure that this is the right way to read it. I think that the right way to read the curses is that God is kindly explaining to Adam and Eve, here's how life is going to be now that you've opened the door to sin. This is what sin does. It's a disease. And this is what it does. So I am describing to you now the consequences and the effects of the way that sin will crack the world And so he begins with the serpent. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. And then he keeps going and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Remember that verse. And then to the woman he said, I will make your pains in child being very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I don't really want to say a whole lot about this, but there's been a lot of debate about what these verses actually mean. My understanding of these verses goes along with some interpreters who understand these verses in light of a similar statement in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So we're going to talk about Cain and Abel in a couple weeks. There, though, it says that sin's desire is for Cain, and it desires to master him. And, uh, and that, that's kind of what I think this desire means. It suggests that the woman will seek to dominate her husband, and the, but the husband will end up dominating his wife. I, I think that's partly what that means. Uh, but I think that what's absolutely clear is that all relationships are spoiled. Adam and Eve were meant to be co-equal stewards of the garden, but no longer is that so. And here's a lot, the, the longest curse to say for Adam To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, uh, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return." These curses, they are about enmity. Uh, Enmity between the serpent and humankind. You will crush your head and you will strike your heel. Enmity between humans. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Enmity between humankind and creation. Uh, uh, Look, there's opposition. Like instead of the glorious garden yielding its fruit, um, humanity is in opposition to the very land it's meant to steward. Enmity, 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 enmity. And so why do we talk about compassion? What's compassionate about these curses? Why does Karl Barth call Genesis an eruption or 
eruption or breaking out of the compassion of God. Well, let me show you where the compassion is. So when it comes to creation and the farmer, it's interesting that the scriptures are not as gloomy about the farmer and his lot. It's interesting also, the same book we talked about in James mentions the farmer, and the farmer is held up in the book of James as the exemplar of patience. He talks about farming, and he talks about looking at the farmer like more than once in the book of James, godly patience that we ought to hold on to as we await the return of Jesus. And if you notice, and we don't have time to look at it, but you can see that in the curse to Adam, there's three times God says to Adam, you're going to eat good food from the land. You're going to eat good food from the land. I know that now that you've opened the door to sin, now there's going to be opposition between you and creation, but you are going to eat good food from it. And when it comes to the woman, Jesus himself remarks about the joy of the mother. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And finally, the snake. I remember I told you to hold on to this verse. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, There's going to be a continual struggle between the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, and the snake. And so whenever Eve's descendants, they choose to live according to God's way, they will gain victory over the snake. But We know that humans remain under the grip of sin. So all of these victories are fleeting until one day when the Son of God comes and crushes the head of the serpent once for all. Um, This is what early church fathers have been calling the first gospel, the proto-euangelion. Uh, for those of you who are scholars and want to write something like really fancy down. It's the first gospel because they saw in this as the prophesying of the victory of Jesus, the future offspring of Eve over Satan. There's compassion and there's deliverance in these curses. What are these curses for if they're not to punish Adam and Eve? I believe that the curses are for a reminder. Now let's go all the way back to Kierkegaard. Remember, what did Kierkegaard say that our true selves were? What, did Kier- what was Kierkegaard's insight? That his insight is that we are finite and we are dependent. So what if these curses are like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What if these curses are like built-in hardware into creation to keep humankind from becoming gods in the wilderness? What if the curses were were to remind us that we were to be dependent? What if opposition to one another reminds us that we need a peacemaker and a peacemaker with a capital P? What if the curses are a reminder that we don't do very well on our own? What if the curses carry a hidden blessing, the blessing that we're limited, blessing of constraint, leading to humility, leading to dependence, leading to deliverance? I mean, even the banishment of Adam and Eve, they get banished from the garden. Even that's a hidden blessing because what if they were to eat of the tree of life and be forever racked with shame? You know, many of us, think that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. Some of you have heard that. Um, I've even heard some like uh, popular megachurch pa- uh, mega pastors say that we need to unhitch the New Testament from the Old. Well, I, I believe that the compassion of God has been uninterrupted since the garden. You read it all the way through the Bible. The compassion of God for Abraham 
the compassion of God for Jacob and all his deceiving, for Joseph in a cell awaiting his release, the compassion of God for Moses and the people of God in the Exodus, and of course, the compassion that finds its climax in Jesus, the one who, by the way, made himself uncovered, naked, hung on a tree. And so, Thus the, George, the poet George Herbert would write in the 1600s all, O oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. How are the curses broken? Well, they're broken through a tree. A tree that's the cross. The only one who walked this earth without despair was Jesus. He was his true self. And here, you know, like I've been talking about re-eating the world through confession. Uh, I, I want to just invite you, if you're like, I need to unburden myself, like talk to us, talk to one of the pastors, find someone to talk to, unburden yourself. And take the example of John Wilson. Uh, speak the biblical truth over, over folks that they're forgiven. But confession is two things. It's one, we confess our sins to one another. But also let me remind you, if you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession of our, limit, of our, of our limits, confession of our dependency, and confession of the one who sets us free. That's what we do in Genesis chapter 3. So let's stand as we close. We say a whole lot of things about confession. We're going to bow our heads for a moment. Some of you may have done this already as you, um, as you took communion, but I just want to give you a moment right now to bring some honest confession before God. Could you just, in the quiet of your own hearts, come out of hiding to God? It's very simple. Just, Lord, forgive me for blank. It's interesting that historically many of the great awakenings in our country um, have begun with confession, begun with the unburdening of ourselves. Um, I hold to uh, what Lewis would say, C.S. Lewis would say about confession that, um, you know, like in our hearts, the things that we commit um, inside of us, we confess those to God. What we've, con what we've committed against our brother or sister, we confess to one another. Um, and of course, I like, I want to invite you to do all of that. Um, but I, I just want to say, what if, if we, what if our courageous vulnerability does exactly that, leads our hearts to revival?
So Jesus, I pray uh, that, that we would experience your forgiveness, but I also pray that we would experience the flame of our hearts being lit by passion for you, God. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen.